Uh, today we are wrapping up our series on Wake Up. We have been looking at the 10 stops along the journey towards spiritual maturity. And the word for this is, is sanctification. And sanctification is simply that ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that transforms us so that our lives are increasingly conformed to the very mind of Christ. Uh, those of us in the Methodist uh, family, we use a phrase called perfected in love. And I love that phrase. Well, last week we learned that, that part of the sanctifying process is, is learning how to delight in God. Uh, today we're at the final stop, which we call uh, devotion to others. Uh, let's hear from Paul's letter to the Colossians, beginning in chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So the very first thing that Paul reminds us is that we are loved. In fact, he says what? He says we are dearly loved. And then he says that we're holy. And we're holy not because of what anything that we have done, but because what God has done in Christ for us. God loves us so much that He gave His his son on the cross, and through that, when we believe in him, we are justified by his grace, and we are made holy. May not always feel holy, may not always act holy, but we are holy in God's eyes. And his love changes us so that our hearts of sin turned inward, which is our, kind of our default position, are gradually turned outward towards God and towards each other. I went to see him in the hospital when he was recuperating from a kind of a scary illness. This man attended worship every Sunday. He was well informed about the Christian faith. In fact, from time to time, he would come to my office and want to borrow one of my theology books, which is very rare, <laughs> believe it or not. I mean, he was a man who sought to, to live the Christian life, but he also wanted to understand it as well. And during our visit, he made an observation, and then he raised a question. He said, Pastor, I hear people say that God told them this and God told them that, but I've never heard God talk. And if God ever spoke to me, what would God say? How do we know what's on God's mind? Maybe you've asked that question. I know I have. Does God speak today? And if so, what would he say? If God ever decided to speak his mind, what would he say? How would he go about saying it? Would God speak 
uh, his mind by writing it on tablets of stone? Or would he say it in a book with 66 volumes? Would he speak through prophets? Or would he speak through the priests? If God had something that he really wanted to say, how would he say it? How would he choose to say it? And, and how could God communicate in a way that we can really understand? How does God do that? Has God ever said what's on his mind? And I said to my friend in the hospital, I said, if you want to hear from God, then see it, listen to it, drummed out in the life of Jesus. Because it's in the life of Jesus that we most clearly understand God's word, that we most clearly understand what's on God's mind. And one of those things that Jesus taught and modeled is this idea of love. In John 13, Jesus was sitting with his disciples. It was the Last Supper. And he said to them, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So not only is love the the first and final commandment, not only is it something that God highly values, but love is what distinguishes you and me as the people of God. And not only that, it was love that that brought Jesus here in the first place, that brought him from heaven to earth, that that caused him to lay aside his divinity and and take on human form. And John 3.16 makes that very clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But let's face it. It's hard to know what love is. Remember Tina Turner's song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Uh, I'm not going to sing it. Don't want to, might be injurious to you, but what did she say? Love is a secondhand emotion. I mean, we use the word to describe so many things. I, I love cherry pie. I love America. I, I love my wife. Are those all the same thing? <laughs> what is love? Miss Turner thought it was an emotion, a feeling. Love is a feeling. Love is a great feeling, but it's much more than just a feeling. You see, we tend to think that feelings are uncontrollable. In other words, I I don't handle it. It handles me. So I fall in love. I've got no control over it. It just happens. Or I fall out of love. I don't love that person anymore. I don't know why. I don't know how that happened. It just happened to me. But Paul doesn't see it that way. For him, love is a choice. And in our scripture from Colossians, he's talking about the new life in Christ like it's clothing. And he writes in verse 9, he says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self. And then in verse 14 he says, And over all of these virtues put on love which binds them all together. So it's it's like you're putting on this new clothing. In in fact, in the original, in, in, in the Greek, some scholars believe that what Paul meant to say was to put on the sweater vest of love, that there's something about a sweater vest that pulls it all together. Does that make sense? That's what some scholars say. It's a conscious decision. It's a commitment to care. And it is controllable. Who you will love and who you will not love, you can control it. And so love is a verb. Love is an an action. It's how you treat other people. In 1 John 3, verse 16, um, he says this. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has a material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Paul is saying love is something that you do. Gary Chapman has written a, a book entitled The Five Love Languages. If you've not read it, I would encourage you to do so. He believes that there are five principal ways that we express and we receive love from others. Uh, they are gifts, a quality time together, a physical touch, a words of affirmation, and acts of service. Now, my love language is acts of service. I both give and receive love that way. Now, my wife's is, is words of affirmation. And for some reason, giving words of affirmation is a struggle for me. It's hard to do. I have to be very conscious about it to, to make sure I do it on a, on a regular basis. But I would much more prefer doing something for her to show her my love, like, like doing the dishes or making the bed or cooking dinner. And while she really appreciates those things, what she really wants is to hear from me words of affirmation. Not so much about what I want, you know, it's about what our loved ones need. So love is a, is a verb. It's an action. I have a, a friend of mine who, who keeps telling me, he says, the Bible says to love one another, but there's a lot of people I just don't have feelings for. He said, how do I make myself have feelings for these people? Well, he thinks that love is a warm fuzzy, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, let's face it. We don't have warm fuzzies for a lot of people. We don't like the way certain people act, the way they smell, the way they, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they vote. <laughs> I mean, some people just rub us the wrong way. Amen? Maybe you're seated beside one of those today. Don't raise up your hand. Don't need to know that, but it could be. And most of all, we don't like people who don't like us. But here's the thing. Not once does Jesus command us to have warm feelings towards everyone. But he did tell us to love our enemies. There is that. So how do we love people who are in need? How do we love people who do evil to us? How do we love people who disagree with us? Well, Paul tells us what's required. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what do you do with the person who is an irritant? The person you're having a hard time getting along with. You treat them with kindness. You look for small ways to do good to them. You take the initiative. You offer practical help. You do them a favor when they're not looking for it. In um, my life group, um, two weeks ago, we were talking about how very hard this is to do. And just a couple days later, one of my group members texted me. She said, you know what happened? One of my co-workers today screwed me, screwed me over. I'm so mad. I began thinking of all the ways that I could get revenge the next day. I was thinking of snarky things that, that I could say and, and jabs. And, and I began to rehearse them over and over in my mind. I couldn't let it go. And, and all the way home, I kept saying, God, I... I I have to love her, I have to love her, I have to love her, but God, I don't even like her. How do I do this? Until finally she said, I was able to surrender it to the Lord, and He helped to change my heart towards her. 
You know, sometimes loving somebody is as simple as controlling your tongue. (laughs) As not saying those things that you want to say. We can love by being concerned about the feelings of others. We can do that by building people up, even if they knock you down. One time Jesus was out for a walk, and the crowds were so great that this short fellow had to climb up a tree to catch a glimpse of him. And and he was a despised tax collector. Very few people would, would have claimed Zacchaeus as a friend. But Jesus saw him up in the tree. He called him to come on down and said, Zacchaeus, I'm having dinner with you today. Now, this was a huge PR mess, a nightmare for his disciples because you, you didn't socialize with people like Zacchaeus. But Jesus is not intimidated by public opinion. He is only interested in building up people who have been knocked down. And we do the same. We love those that God loves. And we discover from Scripture that God has a special place in his heart for the misfits and for the marginalized in our culture. And we're called to do the same thing. You see, paying attention to the overlooked and the undervalued of our society is a big part of the mission of the church. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he stood up in the synagogue at Nazareth and he announced that he was going to proclaim good news to the poor. And so he followed the model his heavenly father had set in motion. He, he hung out with outcasts. He, he ate with sinners. He touched lepers. He, he elevated the status of, 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 of the marginalized and of women and of children and all groups and people. He was constantly and consistently reaching out to those who were marginalized, those who were excluded, those who were isolated. And it got him in trouble. And sometimes it was turned into a scandal but Jesus thought it was worth the risk. You see, touching the world with God's love, Jesus identified with those who have little or no standing. And he still does. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable about the sheep and the goats. And he fast forwards to the end of time when he returns to earth. And the upshot of his story is this, like it or not, that you and I are going to be held accountable for the way we responded to the overlooked of society. And what's even more remarkable is, that, is what Jesus implies. He suggests that he is so identified with these marginalized people that when we reach out to them, we are reaching out to him. And when we overlook them, we are overlooking him. His command is simple, that we love all. And love requires forgiveness. Paul tells us that. Lots of forgiveness. In verse 13, he writes, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Many years ago, I, I, in, in a church that I served, I had a, a member named Bob. Bob would not have gotten the Church Member of the Year Award He didn't bathe regularly. He wasn't real bright. Uh, He lived in a little tumble-down house with his wife. He had some peculiar mannerisms that made him odd. But then came the straw that broke the camel's back. He had written an unsigned letter to me saying some pretty awful things about my child. Now, you can attack me, but you know what happens if you attack my children. I was angry. I'd had it with this guy. I had never, ever excommunicated somebody from church, but I was quite willing to try it out on Bob. 
Didn't know how to do it, but I was going to find a way. I thought he'd be an excellent candidate for my first attempt. And when I confronted him about the letter, he tried to lie his way out. But then he finally admitted he had written the letter. He broke down. He began to cry. He said, I'll leave the church, Pastor, if you want me to. And inside, I have to tell you, I was thinking, oh, let me show you the door. But I heard myself saying instead, you know, Bob, you don't have to leave, but I think you need to change some things in your life and start living the kind of life that God wants you to live. And he was so happy, and I think he really did try, tried to make some changes in his life. And a couple years after that, he passed away, and the family asked me to come back and to preach his funeral. And even though it was quite a challenge to find something good <laughs> to say about Bob, I did. Because God loves Bob, and I have to, too. We need to learn how to forgive, and it doesn't come easily, and it doesn't come naturally. But what the Bible teaches is that it is an overflow of our life with God, that we forgive the sins of others because God has so graciously forgiven us. And it takes community, too. I know Christians, and you do, too, who just wander from church to church looking for the perfect place. And they never really put down roots, and they never really bothered to become a part, and after a few months, they are off and running to another church. Now, I wish I could say this is rare, but actually I see it becoming more and more common. They tend to treat the church like they would treat any commodity as a consumer. They, they shop and compare until they find a, a product that meets uh, their needs at the price they want to pay. And so church becomes no more than a Walmart or a Target. Now, here's why this works against us. God uses your Christian family. God uses the Christian community to sanctify us. And so, in a, in a sense, we're all like sandpaper to each other. We rub off the rough places. You rub off. You have and are rubbing off the rough places in my life. And while that may hurt at times, and while I may be tempted to run off and leave, the easy thing, but if I will trust you and if I'm humble enough to allow another person to speak into my life, if I open myself up to be held accountable for my behavior, guess what happens? Jesus begins to be formed in me. You see, it's in community that I'm perfected. Yeah, I could live as a hermit away from people and think, hey, I'm doing really well in the Christian life. But it's in the process of faith-based relationships, going long-term together, that we begin making significant process towards this thing called love. Paul sums it all up in Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the, con the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Paul says that if you love one another, then you fulfilled the law of God. And so the entire Christian ethic boils down to one simple rule. That's it. Now here's the problem. Following that rule is hard. Love is, in fact, the hardest thing in the world. In fact, I would say that apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's impossible. And so the only real hope of becoming a person of genuine love is Jesus in us. And that's what this sermon series has been all about. It's about becoming fully alive to the power of God in you day after day after day. So we've gone through the 10 stops on the journey towards spiritual maturity. Where are you on that? Have you figured out where you are? What stop you're at? Forgiven and active? Holy discontent? Broken? Surrendered? Learning to delight in God? Or learning how to be devoted to one another? Where are you? You ready to move on to the next stop? Let's pray. Well, Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. And so send us your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts the greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and all virtue, without which we cannot be counted even as your followers. Come, Holy Spirit, and grant us that gift, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.